Welcome back to Historical Context. Today we continue our colonization of the Middle Colonies Unit, and today's episode centers around the founding of Maryland. And so where we last left off, it was England, 1632, and Cecil Calvert had been granted a formal charter to settle the colony of Maryland north of Virginia. He was beginning to put together a group to go over. Virginia settlers were not taking the news very lightly. After trying to informally stop the colonization effort, Virginia planters filed a complaint with the English Lords of Trade and Plantations. The Privy Council took up the matter and issued a ruling on July 3, 1633. They found in favor of the Maryland colony and additionally ruled that either colony shall have free trade and commerce with each other to avoid trade disputes arising after settlement. On November 22, 1633, the Ark and the Dove, with 200 settlers on board, left England for Maryland. On board was Leonard Calvert, Cecil's younger brother, and the first governor of the colony. Cecil did not go over on this first ship. A writing was created called A Relation of the Successful Beginnings of the Lord Baltimore's Plantation, and it details the voyage and subsequent landing at Maryland. The book aptly describes the colonists' motives. Let's have a look. Cecil Calvert and his father, George Calvert, the first Lord Baltimore, shared two prime interrelated goals. As land developers, they looked for profits, and as Catholics, they sought an escape from the legal disabilities Catholics suffered in England. So it was a lot like the Plymouth Puritans and to some extent Massachusetts Bay. They wanted religious freedom and they wanted economic freedom. Cecil also wanted people with leadership capabilities in the colony. So he offered land on favorable terms. In fact, he offered 2,000 acre manors to those who would qualify. He would also offer them lordships and positions of political power. And again, from last week's episode, he had the authority to do that. This was starting to sound medieval almost in nature, and if successful, Maryland's political structure was going to look much more different than its other colonies. The writing goes on to mention the goal being to attract men of wealth and high social positions to Maryland. The Ark and the Dove would arrive in the Chesapeake Bay on March 7, 1634. They headed north and named their first stop St. Clements, where one of the shallops, and that was one of the smaller boats that come off the ship, overturned near shore and a few of the women on board nearly drowned. It was a, St. Clements was a 400 acre island and it was deemed too small for the group. Two days later, they went south and settled St. Mary's, Maryland. At St. Mary's, they encountered the Yaocomico natives. 
The two groups struck up an immediate friendship, and unlike Jamestown or Plymouth, the Yaukomiko Indians voluntarily moved away to make room for the English settlers. The Yaukomiko uh, were not being totally disadvantaged here because they had struggled with rival tribes in the area for some time and now had an ally to help them in the English. The writer of uh, the book that we're looking at goes on to describe native homes as being large, about 10 feet tall, and the natives themselves as tall in stature. The writer also adds that the men have many wives in the Yaukomiko culture and that they would be a virtuous nation if only they were Christians. The colonists came prepared to plant cotton, oranges, lemons, apples, pears, and potatoes. They also had hogs, cattle, and goats. And so it sounds like, and again, we're 27 years past Jamestown and the failed colony of Popham, which we talked about. It sounds like they're much more prepared to get going than past colonial expeditions. The first section of a relation concluded with no signature and a date of May 27, 1634. The writer goes on to describe the new rules of the colony in part two of the book. Here we see one of the conditions of owning a manor come up. Let's have a look. Rendering and paying yearly unto his lord and his heirs for every such manor 600 pounds weight of good wheat and such other services as shall be generally agreed upon for public life and the common good. He'll give you a manor, 2,000 acre manor, but it also comes at a price back to him. The writer goes on to describe the history of Jamestown, where the settlers had to congregate their living spaces close together in order to maximize their security. And we talked about that long ago in our Jamestown unit. As a result, in St. Mary's, everyone was going to live in close proximity at first until each of the manors could properly be set up. If someone was unwilling to take responsibility for that size of land, we're talking 2,000 acres, they were given a plot of land in the town. One section lays out the terms of an indentured servant in St. Mary's. Let's have a look. Whatsoever husband man or other laboring man shall be willing to go to this plantation and to bind himself a servant there for five years, he shall be entertained upon these terms. He shall be found sufficient meat and drink and clothing during the said term. And at the end of the said term, he shall have 50 acres of good land conveyed to him and his heirs forever within the said providence, a whole year's provision. So an indentured servant was given a five-year path to land ownership and this is a little different than the seven years we're used to seeing. The supplies promised at the end were to come from the other plantations. So the other plantations had to pay a tax in to supply the indentured servants. 
The writer goes on to mention that bricklayers, carpenters, masons, and shipwrights only needed three years of service to qualify. Calvert is making a very aggressive effort to bring talented people over to help build that colony. The letter was concluded with a deadline of arrival for October 20th, so you had to be there by October 20th. And the letter was dated July 15th. So if you think about the back and forth of the Atlantic Ocean, you weren't going to have much time when the letter got to England to decide whether or not you were going to go over by October 20th. A second relation of Maryland was published the next year, and it included a map of the country, the original charter for Maryland, a list of what an individual should bring with them, provisions that should be brought for trade, and a draft agreement for indentured servitude. Sounds like a, a complete package to becoming a new colonist. The writer noted that the regions supplied ample resources both in food and timber. Even the livestock could be fed by things like chestnuts that were in plenty. In chapter 6 of the second book, changes in the conditions of transport were published. So now to come over, there's been a change in the rules. First, the manors offered by Lord Baltimore were now 1,000 acres, half what they were before. Any person that comes over shall receive 100 acres. Wow. Any family would get 200 acres and 50 acres for each child. Any woman transporting children shall have, quote, the conditions aforesaid. So a widow that comes over would still get the family and per child provision of land. Anyone carrying women servants shall have 50 acres per female servant. So I see this as a little more of a sweetener for regular colonists versus people higher up in English society, especially considering what land they were offering families. Before we close this episode, I wanted to share an interesting expedition that occurred in April 1634. It involved seven men, including a guy named Cyprian Thorogood, on a trade trip to examine the entire northern part of Chesapeake Bay. They came across Claiborne's Kent Island, and Claiborne was talked about in last week's episode. He was a Virginian setting up trade in Kent, on Kent Island, and Claiborne himself was there trading with natives when they went by. According to Thorogood, Claiborne asked the natives to attack the trade ship. The natives refused because they said the English had never done them any harm. This goes to show you how tense those relations between Maryland and Virginia were. With these natives also was an African man, presumably a former slave. He described to the crew, this is the Maryland crew, how these natives burn prisoners of war to death. He also stated that he knew this because, quote, he lived among them to learn the language. Now, we've talked in our 16th century explorers unit, and that's a ways, a ways back, 
about various aspects of assimilation. But I believe this is the first time I've seen an African actually living amongst the natives. And it's likely that this individual was a free man with permission from the Virginia colony to be free. Otherwise, he wouldn't be out engaging in such conversation with other colonists. I think that this is the first documented uh, encounter with a free African-American in the New World. So with that story being said, and I, I think it's a fascinating story, we've reached 1635. And there's about to be more problems between Virginia and Maryland. But in order to tell that story, we've got to go back to Virginia and pick up where we left off there, which we will do next time on Historical Context. <laughs>